0: Welcome to the Estate Planning 101 series, an informative podcast brought to you by Discovery. Each episode will guide you through all anyone needs to know about leaving a legacy for their loved ones. It's also an educational tool for you as advisors to help navigate the conversations you have with your clients and to make those more beneficial. I'm your host, Bruce Whitfield. Join me as I chat to leading experts and professionals for insights on all the important components to consider for a well-rounded, hassle-free plan, as well as learning to better understand the human side of it all. After all, estate planning is as much about human lives and all the complexities that go along with it as it is about assets and money. Welcome to this Discovery podcast. Harry Joffe is the head of legal services at Discovery. And Harry Joffe is here to educate us about the law of the land. Unfortunately, Harry, it's not as simple as simply getting a financial advice and getting a financial plan. Uh, The law also has a considerable impact on our decision making when it comes to how we treat our assets?
1: Yeah, Bruce, I mean, you've got so many things you've got to think about. You've got to think about estate planning, you've got to think about tax, you've got to think about other legal issues. So, I mean, estate planning and tax are probably the two most important, but uh, it's not just that. I mean, you've got to think about your different investment choices, your different jurisdictions, but I think for our purposes, we'll focus on tax and estate planning.
0: Broadly speaking, South Africa... Tax and estate planning, one hundred and one. What are the big issues we need to look out for?
1: Right. So let's start with estate planning. So South Africa is similar to the UK in the sense that it allows for what we call freedom of testation, and that means you quite free when you die to leave your assets to anyone you want. There are obviously a few exceptions. You have to maintain your spouse and children, and there are maintenance obligations. But that aside, you can leave your assets to your best friend and cut out your family if you so choose. Whereas if you look at Europe and some other countries like that where they've got forced airship, you don't have freedom of testation. So that's a plus. But, of course, it makes it more tricky because now you've got to think about a will. You've got to think about who gets what in your will. And you've got to actually sit down and do that. And most South Africans hate doing wills. Something like 70% of South Africans die without a will. It's actually amazing. And then you've got, of course, a whole different set of complexities that arise. But you've actually got to sit down and you've got to look at yourself, you've got to look at your assets, and you've got to do a will or get a will done for you by a professional. And you've got to decide who gets what and how to distribute what. And then, of course, South Africa applies an estate duty. So you do pay duties on your assets when you die, which is on top of income tax. And our estate duties are actually quite simple. It's a 20% or a 25% depending on the size of your estate. So part of estate planning is not just doing a will and making sure the right people get the right assets. But it's trying to plan legitimately to try and minimize your estate duty exposure, which you can do quite legally.
0: Okay, lots to talk about in that particular front. When we look at the fundamental issue of estate planning and retirement planning and life insurance and the taxes involved, how does the smorgasbord of complexity work together?
1: So that's where you need your advisors and your advice comes in. Because, I mean, you could very well jump out of one tax and land in another. So I'll give you a classic example. So for estate duty, you're obviously trying to minimize the value of your assets. So you've got a business for estate duty. When you die, the shares in that business are subject to estate duty, like uh, all your other assets. So what all good South Africans do, although they shouldn't, they try and undervalue their business value for estate duty. But then, of course, on the other side of the equation, you've got tax and you've got capital gains tax. And then you need to, in your tax return, you need to value that business for capital gains tax. And South Africans, because they might sell that business, they want to have a lower capital gain when they sell the business. So they might overvalue the business for capital gains purposes. Now, of course, that catches you. So if you overvalue for capital gains purposes, so one day when you sell it, you don't have a huge capital gain. But then you don't plan carefully and you die in the middle then you've got an increased value for estate duty. So you're kind of going to get caught in one of the taxes. And I always say to clients, you might not like this, but you must actually try and be honest in how you value your assets. Because whichever way you go, if you're dishonest, you're going to get caught in one of the taxes. A capital gains tax is such a clever tax because it's there to catch you when you try to do these funny things. Because it's a tax on capital values, it has so many other consequences. So you try and move assets out of your estate to avoid estate duty but because you're giving up ownership of an asset that triggers capital gains tax. And that's why, Bruce, you can't look at tax planning and estate planning in in isolation. As you put it so nicely, you've got to look at the smorgasbord. You've got to look at everything together and try and plan to minimise your overall taxes, not just try and avoid one.
0: Why is it that South Africans think they are so incredibly smart and that they can outsmart a tax authority that has met many, many people far wilier, far sneakier, far more deceitful than they could ever imagine to be. I mean, it just strikes me that we're quite naive sometimes in dealing with our tax authorities. We think that we're smarter than they are. Yeah, Bruce, I
1: mean, that's true, because uh, our tax authorities, and this is a scary thing, which we don't always realise, that tax authorities around the world meet and chat and discuss cases and discuss tactics. So, you know, our local revenue officials, they go to where they used to when they could travel, They go to all these multilateral meetings at the IMF and with all the other revenue authorities. And now with the CRS, the Common Reporting Standard, which is around the world, where all revenue authorities around the world share information, it's even worse. So, you know, if you've got a clever structure in the UK, which has been stopped, you'll find very often our authorities here will simply copy that. And, you know, capital gains tax is a classic example. We copied a lot of the law from overseas we brought in our capital gains act or schedule because they've had it there for so much longer
0: so you say tax and even the hardy does get scared when it comes to taxes on estates Who who's responsible for those payments
1: okay great so yeah the hardy does are gone silent i can quickly talk before they get there <laughs> and it's an interesting question bruce so when you look at estate you need a deceased estate it's not a simple answer i mean Nothing is simple when it comes to estate planning and estate duty. So there's different permutations. So all the physical assets, so shares, houses, you know, physical assets in the estate, the estate pays that estate duty. And of course, the executive pays it for the estate. But if you've got other assets, you've got, for example, a life insurance policy, which let's say pays to a child of yours, we'll keep it simple. So dad dies, his life policy pays to his son. That policy is actually still estate-dutable in dad's estate because the state Duty Act deems it to be an asset in the estate because it was on dad's life. And now you've got an interesting mismatch. You've got dad's estate having to pay the state duty. You've got the son sitting with the money from the policy. And then in terms of the state Duty Act, the executor will recover that estate duty from the son. So when you've got life insurance policies, the beneficiary of the policy will have to refund the state duty and in effect pay it although their state pays it. So, again, you have different permutations depending on the assets. Life policies are different to actual physical assets because they the deeming provisions which catch them. Uh,
0: why does it have to be so blimmin' complicated? You would have thought that after 30,000 years of human evolution from the days where if the woolly mammoth got us, then whoever was oldest in the cave got the cave... You know, we understood the way things worked, you know, 30,000 years ago. Why has this world of inheritance and estate duty and taxation become so complicated?
1: It's just that life has got so complicated. So, in the good old days, you just used to have your cave and you used to have your Liverpool shirt. So, those are your two assets.
0: <laughs> no, well, one's an asset and one, you know, is a potential future liability, but carry on.
1: Or, or a growth asset. Yeah. So, life was very simple. Now, of course, You've got so many different kinds of assets. You've got life policies. I mean, you've got cryptocurrencies. You can't believe the assets clients have and how complicated it gets. We had a client a while ago who had a cycad collection. He had a cycad collection worth 10 million rand in his nursery. Now, I think how complicated that gets for estate planning because now he's got to think about if he dies, who takes over those cycads and his kids are not interested in nature at all, so they wouldn't water the cycads, the cycads could die, and 10 million rand could disappear overnight. So part of his estate planning was trying to work around these cycads and who was gonna look after the cycads. That's again, not simple. Clients have got all these digital estates now. I mean, in America, they are now developing a concept of not only a normal executor who winds up your normal estate, but now you've got a digital executor who winds up your digital estate separately. He winds up your Facebook accounts, your Instagram accounts, all your digital stuff. And I mean, digital has made the world totally different because you need to try to plan around that. There was a very famous case last year where a Canadian entrepreneur started a cryptocurrency fund. He had about $100 million invested in this fund. He then took a nice holiday to India to go and discover himself. He unfortunately died in India, didn't leave the keys or the passwords to that fund to anyone. And now that $100 million is gone, no one can track it. So now we've got cryptocurrencies, we've got digital assets, clients have got wine collections, horse stud farms. I mean, life is just complicated. So these are not simple estates or things to wind up anymore. It's a whole team you often need. I mean, when you've got clients that die with horse farms, then the executive has going to manage that horse farm.
0: Uh, rich people's problems. And I suppose if you've got a tax problem, then you've had extraordinary privilege and you should be lucky enough to have a tax problem and pay for the advice that you're going to need, invariably, to sort all of this out. If a beneficiary is a minor, and you made the, the point earlier of a minor, for example, as a recipient of a of a life insurance policy, but if a beneficiary is a minor, how do you minimise tax liabilities? Because the intention of uh the deceased is that the minor should get a leg up in life or sometimes both legs up in life so let me tell
1: you you, you've hit a a button here because if there's one thing that upsets me is when someone dies and they nominate their minor as a direct beneficiary on their life policy and that causes endless trouble because dad dies he's got a policy of say five million rand now his minor is a beneficiary on that policy And suddenly everything is a mess because if we were to pay 5 million rand to that miner's bank account, who's going to manage that money? The miner's guardian is going to get his greedy hands on that money and we don't even know if the miner will ever see the money. And then we at the insurance company have to try and play Solomon and try and divide up and solve the problem where we pay the money to. We could pay it to the guardians fund in Pretoria in which case it will sit there till the miner turns 18.
0: No, but she has the problem with that. That's not serving your client and it's not serving your client's wishes because that is not a place to be parking money, surely.
1: Yes, and so that's a problem. So we could pay it into the miner's bank account and then the Guardian wastes it. Or we could try and help the miner to invest it, but then who makes a choice on behalf of the miner? And where does the money go and who makes sure the money is protected? So the simple answer to that, Bruce, is instead of Dad nominating the minor as a beneficiary directly with all those problems that it then causes, is rather nominate a trust as the beneficiary on the policy. Now you're gonna say to me, well, that's all very well, but you know what it costs to set up a trust, that can cost quite a bit of money. And that's fine, because you don't have to have the trust set up now. What you could do is you could nominate what we call, I'm gonna throw in a fancy word again as I love doing, you could nominate a testamentary trust to be the beneficiary. So in your will, you create a trust. In your policy beneficiary nomination, you use that will trust, that testamentary trust, and you make it the beneficiary of your policy. Then when dad dies, we all wait for the trust to be set up and we can pay the money straight into the trust to be properly looked after for the benefit of the minor child.
0: Uh, that would be sensible. Okay, good guidance on that. But there are also cases where parents with all the best intention of the world Set up, have a letter of wishes, have a will, have their kids nominated as beneficiaries in their wills, and then they don't look at the stuff again for a while. And it might be a year or two or ten. The kid is no longer a minor. The kid is a beneficiary of the estate. Yet dad and mum fell out ten years ago, maybe got divorced And suddenly there is a new person on the scene who challenges the veracity of the will and says, hold on a second, but he was going to leave it all to me. He was actually on his way to the lawyer's office to change his will or to change the beneficiaries of the policy. And suddenly the trustees of these big insurance companies are going to make big decisions as to where the money goes i mean just because you're nominated or you have nominees and you have it written in a will and you've written it in blood um on a document somewhere doesn't necessarily mean that your beneficiaries truly are your beneficiaries and i came across a case like this in my extended family fairly recently and it was something of a body blow to the kids who thought they were going to be inheriting a fairly substantial amount of money
1: So Africans, they watch so many soap operas, they like to think that they can challenge a will. You know, on TV, it's very easy. Just challenge the will, and it's simple. So African law is a bit more conservative. So our courts and our judges don't like overturning a will, unless, of course, there's clear evidence of fraud or what we call undue duress. Now, it gets a bit more complicated because obviously you have to maintain your spouse and children. So if you have a case where dad dies, he leaves his entire estate to the SPCA, and he cuts out his wife and his children, they will lodge a maintenance claim and they can challenge that in terms of maintenance laws. But that's a bit different to challenging the actual veracity of the will. I mean, we had a great case a uh, couple of months ago. We had an individual who had a first wife, who he had divorced. He had a girlfriend who was now almost his second wife, but then he got tired of her and he had a third girlfriend now. And then he goes into hospital, he had a brain tumor, goes into hospital, And then he took up with the nurse. So he's got like a fourth lady on the scene. And then he wanted to change the beneficiary on his life policy from wife one and girlfriend two to nurse four. And it really gets complicated because now what do we do at the insurance company? We don't want to start getting involved in his personal affairs, but we don't want to let the law get broken. And we had to take a difficult call. But eventually, he agreed to make a trust the beneficiary on that policy for his kids and not any of the four wives. So we're kind of happy with that. But it gets very difficult. People have got complicated lives. they change, Circumstances have changed. I can't tell you, Bruce, how many people in their wills have got ex-spouses still as heirs who they've forgotten to remove. We had a case a couple of weeks ago where a widow had her deceased husband still as an heir in her will, which is also a mess. So, I mean, it's really important. I agree with you, Bruce, that you update your will. You should be looking at your will every year. I mean, that's really the the gold standard or at least when circumstances change
0: and hey uh, yeah, i have the guts to do it and have the guts to face up to this issue because there's so many considerations when Writing the will. What do we need to understand about the complexity of overseas assets and domestic assets? And more and more people are investing and they may be thinking that they're geniuses and they can go offshore and they can do it themselves. They may want to use advisors and get some decent advice on it and do it as cleanly as possible. But when it comes to drawing up a will and multiple wills and understanding multiple jurisdictional rules, there is so much that you have to consider? So the first principle
1: is that in theory, your South African will can regulate your foreign estates. So you could say in your South African will, this applies to all my assets in South Africa and offshore. So that's fine in theory. In practice, it doesn't work well at all because there's a couple of problems. Number one, your local will, the original copy has to go to the master in South Africa. Now the overseas authorities also want an original will. So you'll find that Unless you've got multiple originals, which is very rare, your original will, will go to the master and the authorities overseas will have to wait to get that back before they can start winding up. That's the first problem. The second problem, of course, is conflict of laws. So we've got a set of laws in South Africa. There's a different set of laws overseas. The European countries, particularly those that fell under Napoleon in the good old days, apply forced airship, which means irrespective of what your will says, your assets will go to your spouse and children in a fixed percentage. So you could have a South African will leaving your assets to your children and the French authorities will say, we won't comply with that because you've cut out your spouse and we won't recognize that. And then of course the third problem is the legal difference of the conflict of laws where South African law might require certain requirements for a will to be valid, the overseas authorities might have different requirements. In other words, we need two witnesses to witness a will, Overseas authorities might have different requirements, and you could have a, a classic conflict of laws there. So, though, in theory, the South African will could do the job, unless it's a very small asset overseas, unless it's just a bank account or a simple unit trust, the general advice is to have separate wills overseas to regulate those different jurisdictions. Or, even simpler, Bruce, as we always like to say at the insurance company level, if you can wrap your overseas assets into an endowment wrapper, with the south african insurer then the endowment wrapper allows you to nominate a beneficiary and when you die those assets will pay you straight to the beneficiary you bypass the whole problem of a foreign will, of foreign laws of foreign conflict of laws and then that last word which i love throwing in of probate which is the whole business of actually winding up an offshore estate which in itself is a, a separate discussion on costs and finding foreign executors. But if you're a foreign endowment policy, that whole problem goes away. You nominate your beneficiary, the cash or the proceeds pays out of the policy direct to your beneficiary.
0: What about using donations more effectively in terms of reducing tax? Whether those donations go to beneficiaries who are named in your will or whether those beneficiaries are the SPCA, whatever the case might be. The use of donations while you're alive to better structure your affairs?
1: Yeah, Bruce, so in terms of our Income Tax Act, you pay donations tax at the rate of 20% or 25% on assets that you donate, but you get an annual exemption of 100,000 rand a year. You're allowed to donate up to 100,000 rand a year to anyone you want to free of donations tax. And I agree with you, that's a very good tax planning and estate planning vehicle to use, where every year you should be getting rid of 100,000 rand out of your estate. Now, the question everyone's going to ask is well, who do we give the money to? I mean, you could obviously donate it to a charity, but then, of course, it's gone. If you want to get rid of it and yet still keep it, the classic structure is to create a trust, donate 100,000 Rand every year to a trust, and let the trust then take out an investment with that money. Because then the money's left your estate, it can grow in the trust's hands, and you don't have to worry about any estate duty on that assets anymore. And if the trust invests efficiently, You can even minimise your income tax as well. So using donations is a very important part of planning. You can also donate between spouses. If you're lucky enough to have a spouse, Bruce, you can use them as a tax planning vehicle and you can donate assets to them because there's no donations tax on donations between spouses.
0: Are there not sort of limitations on the extent of donations that you can make available to your spouse? No, you can actually
1: give your spouse unlimited amounts of money without donations tax, but there is a little catch. Because in terms of the income tax anti-avoidance provisions, if you are donating assets to your spouse for you to avoid income tax, then SARS can actually ignore that transfer. So I'll give you a simple example. Let's assume the wife is the richer party and she wants to invest a million rand, but she's wealthier, she's got a higher income tax rate than her husband. So she gives him the million rand because there's no donations tax between spouses, lets him invest it because his tax will be lower. What Section 7 of the Income Tax Act says is because that transfer was done to avoid income tax, SARS will actually ignore the transfer and will still tax her on the income from that investment. So you can donate assets to spouses, but you've got to be careful that you're not seen to do it to avoid income tax, because else you'll be caught in the anti avoidance rules. You can do it to avoid a state duty or to do for estate planning, but you can't do it as an income tax avoidance scheme, or else the uh, anti rules will catch you.
0: And you've also got to make, I suppose, pretty certain that your spouse uh, feels the same way about you as you do about them. And I guess in many cases, <laughs> the reason why some estates end up in such a mess is back to your friend in hospital with uh, spouse one, spouse two, girlfriend three, and nurse four. Some of these things are never as simple as they appear on the surface.
1: Exactly, Bruce. I mean, we always say, if you are using your spouse as a tax planning vehicle or a estate planning vehicle, divorce will become very inconvenient. And we see that very often, that transfer <laughs> assets to the spouse, so there's a divorce, and then the spouse says, oh, no, I didn't really give him the assets, I was just meant to do it as a tax planning uh, structure. And then the courts have got no tolerance for that or no sympathy for that, I can tell you. Once you've donated the asset, it's gone. Uh, just make sure your spouse stays, even if the asset's gone. Agree.
0: When we look at the smorgasbord of options open to people, especially people with a bit of money, potentially with assets in, in different parts of the world, what are the big three things that you need to be considering as you do your planning?
1: For South Africans, it's very difficult for them to do a will. I don't know why. I think they worry if they do a will, they're going to die or they don't like thinking about death, But I mean, 70% of South Africans die without a will. So it's very important for South Africans that you actually do this will. I can tell you all the banks, all the trust companies will help you. You can do a simple will. It's not that difficult. But get that will done. But then when you do the will, and this is the problem, and I always say I love seeing clients' wills, because when you look at a client's will, you actually see into the soul of that client. Because when you look at their will, you see what really makes that client tick. And how they think about people. But you've got to say to a client, when you do your will, you must be honest. You've got to know at what age your children are able to handle money. You've got to know how much money to leave to your children and your spouse, how to protect them, what kind of assets you should leave to who. So that's the first thing. Do your will and be honest with yourself when you're doing that will. Secondly, you've got to think about tax. I mean, when you, Doing any kind of estate plan, you've got to think about tax. You've got to think about the estate duties. So just two simple rules: that your first three and a half million rand in your estate is free of your state duty. If you're the second dying spouse, it might go up to 7 million, but you should use that, uh, that rebate to its maximum. And the other plan is whatever you bequeath to a spouse is free of your state duty. That's the well-known paragraph 4Q of the Estate Duty Act. But again, you can leave everything to your spouse, but then, of course, other people are cut out of their estate. So you've got to try and link up estate planning with estate duty minimization. And then the third thing, Bruce, it's so important, is liquidity in a deceased estate. You know, not a lot of clients die with a million rand cash in their bank account, but people forget the actual cash needs in their estate when they die. I mean, you've got to pay executors' fees, you've got to pay taxes, you've got to pay estate duties. You've got to pay all your debts, all your overdrafts, all your liabilities. There's a big cash need in an estate when you die. I mean, obviously the simplest way to fill that need is to have a life policy, but you've got to be quite clear. And you've got to think very carefully who that life policy pays to. You might well need to pay that policy into your estate to provide the cash, but then you've got to think about executives charging fees on that. And you've got to plan carefully that there's enough cash in your estate when you die, and that's what we call a liquidity analysis. You should sit with your financial advisor or your estate planning advisor, and you should sit and look at your liquidity, your tax problems, how much cash you need in your estate. As I always say to clients, you know, you probably can't afford to die. You just haven't got enough cash in your estate. Can you actually afford to die, which is a a big test to be able to, to get through and to look at.
0: For many South Africans they'll say, Well, that's my insurance policy. I can't afford to die, so I won't. I like your statistic of seventy percent of South Africans die without a will. There's only one greater certainty than that is that one hundred percent of South Africans will die. And I suppose ultimately it is therefore the huge burden of responsibility of when you're alive, to make some decent choices so that everything you worked for goes to where you wanted it to go to, Harry. And the vast majority of what you've worked for ends up where you would have liked it to go. And yeah, the tax man will get their bit, but you don't necessarily want to give them too much of an advantage over your beneficiaries.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all very well doing a very complex tax plan and everything goes into trusts and your kids don't get anything. But ultimately, as you say, Bruce, I mean, the point of a tax plan is A, to minimise tax and estate duty, but B, to make sure... The right assets go to the right people. And I mean, again, I've seen so many cases where dad plans so carefully all the assets going to trust and there's no taxes paid, which is great. But then the family can't get the money out of the trust because they're fighting with the trustees and they're fighting amongst themselves. And ultimately, I always say, you know, as you as a client, when you go upstairs, you want to look down and see your spouse and kids fighting and no one getting any of your hard-earned money. So it's all very well doing tax planning and estate planning. But really, as you just said, Bruce, you want to make sure your assets go to the right people and the right people get the right assets. It's no good leaving your dental practice to your son who's never going to be a dentist and hates dentistry. You've got to make sure you plan around that. Make sure the right people get the right assets. And again, you can leave everything to your spouse and then you won't pay any estate duty. But can your spouse handle such a big estate and handle such a big amount of money? It might be better to pay some estate duty and pay only some assets to the spouse and the rest of the assets to other family members who can handle it better. So it's not just a tax issue. Tax is one of the issues, but it's very much a smorgasbord of issues. Look at tax, look at estate planning, look at your family, look at who you want to get what and make sure the right assets go there.
0: Harry Joffey, the head of legal services at Discovery. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then be sure to look out for the rest of our series on all things to do with estate planning. The Estate Planning 101 series, an informative podcast aimed at helping you better guide your clients through the process and is brought to you by Discovery.